Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Want to exhibit your work? BFF doesn't exist without artists. BFF will help you get in contact with neighborhood businesses and spaces and guide you through any other help you need. Start the conversation at bffomaha.org. BFF is dedicated to supporting the region's emerging and established artists by creating opportunity, exposure, and experiences that help them move forward while enriching the cultural competency of the greater Omaha area. BFF to the arts, BFF to the community, BFF. And today on the show, well, the show, of course, is Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. And today we've got a show that's a little bit less geared toward entertainment and geared instead toward important things like the world, the planet, you know, staying alive, stuff like that. Uh, the guest today is sustainability consultant Jessica Mizar, who her company, Dryad, is trying to find a way to help local businesses be sustainable be environmentally conscious, be aware of waste, of ways that they can reduce their own waste, uh, to be more efficient in general. Jessica's kind of just getting started with this. She's one of the first people to graduate from Creighton, which had a sustainability degree program. And so she's part of a new group of people who are specifically trained and educated in how to do some of these things and how to make a world where instead of us sort of just accepting like, well, when I go to the office, things are just going to be bad for the environment and that's just a part of living, you can instead try to be more conscious and sort of meet meet the world halfway is maybe not the right way to say it. But the idea would be if you make a bunch of little changes to something that's more sustainable, that's more eco-friendly, you can make a big difference in long term, especially if a lot of people start to do that. Biggest problem you have, just like trying to tell people how to recycle, is they just don't know what to what that means. They don't know how to do it. They don't know how to learn how to do it. And so people like Jessica are the necessary step to get the world to be full of people who know how to be environmentally conscious and to help actually make things not horrible all the time for the world that we live in. So she's out there trying to make uh, sustainable ways for people to do what they need to do, to live, to have their jobs to make society work without destroying everything, which is, uh, you know, that's a huge goal. And so I was excited to talk to her. And I think it'll be interesting for you to try to get a sense of how to do some of that. So uh, this is my conversation with Jessica Mizar talking about her company, Dryad Environmental Sustainability Consulting. So are you from Omaha originally? Mm-hmm. So, okay, you've been here. Omaha, to my knowledge, does not have much of a hub of sustainability or really, I mean, it's like recently, it seems like there's been more of a movement toward actually Mm eco-awareness, but it's not traditionally known for that. Like I just went to Yellowstone uh, recently and I was shocked even just to see in states where they have like an economic draw for something that's natural, they actually have, you know, like composting and they have actual recycling programs and it seems like they put an effort into that. And it really draws attention to the fact that, like, Nebraska doesn't really do that. There's not as much of uh, an active push to try to actually protect things or be aware of the environment or anything like that. Is that your experience as well, or would you agree with that? Yeah, I I think that I was lucky um, just being in a sustainability program at Creighton. Um, I was kind of surrounded by a lot of people who were, like, minded mm-hmm. um, and found community there. But, like, looking outwards... Um, from that, I, I've been like lucky to connect with a lot of people who are doing sustainability geared things, but I was thinking about, um, today, just like before coming here, uh, there's not like a central like focus of a environmental community that I've found like in the greater Omaha area. Where, where, like, what was the point when you started to even become passionate about that? So, um, I, I've always been kind of environmentally inclined, but when I learned just the reality of how severe climate change is and the ways that it was going to impact social justice issues, I've always been pretty um, involved with social justice geared things. And so learning how um, environmentalism uh, overlaps with classism, racism, um, things like that. So, okay. So it's like you're able to sort of see that and then connect it to everything. Mm-hmm. So, okay. But like when you're, when you're a kid, were you really into nature or going outside or like, did that start early? Yeah. I, I've always loved playing outside and, um, spending time in nature. So I think I was lucky to develop that relationship. Um, one of, it's kind of a sad quote, but like something that's really stuck with me that one of my professors said that is that, Uh, we're not going to save something that we don't have a relationship with. 
And so when people are prevented the opportunity to develop a relationship with nature, I think um, that can really hinder just uh, that like gut reflex to mm-hmm. want to care about the environment because you don't feel connected to nature, even though nature is all around us constantly and there's right. things to say about the divide there. But what, yeah, what, I, what, do you, what do you make of the fact that it, people have to learn how to have a relationship with nature? I think um, it's something that I think comes more naturally to us when we're young, but uh, as adults, I, the one thing that the environmental community is critiqued for a lot is just being sort of elitist, and I think um, the history of the mo- movement, like the National Parks Movement, um, is it was designed by um, like essentially rich white men for rich white men, and so we have to be really conscientious of that history of the environmental movement as a whole. Um, I think for adults getting money to go to a national park and go on vacation um, and spend time in these areas that are being preserved uh, is really a privilege. And it's it's like lucky to be able to take time off work to go spend time in nature when you live in like a urban area. Mm-hmm. I think for people who work rurally, like they develop a different type of relationship because when you're working with land constantly, you're going to see it as more utilitarian, but still value it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for people who are just totally isolated from it, I think it's really, a, you know, you can like create neighborhood parks and things like that, but just like having the full experience of going out in nature and feeling totally submerged in it is something that everybody doesn't get to experience. Um, is that something you were able to do when you were a kid? Yeah, definitely. Where, um, where'd you go? So I, well, I I haven't spent a lot of time in national parks, but I've always been lucky to have a really big backyard. I remember like when I was a kid, I actually lived in um, Brisbane, Australia, but we had a creek in our backyard and there was like animals running around and like I got to go play in the creek and all day I would just like daydream and, you know, develop this relationship with nature um, in a super open way because that's how kids are. I feel like that's its own good step where it's like to see nature just in your backyard and like the fact that even the neighborhood or wherever you live there are creatures that live there it's mm-hmm. not just you know human land totally. uh that seems like a step that a lot of people it takes a long time for people to even really recognize that you know like they mm-hmm. might put a bird feeder out but they don't think about like how can i make my yard something that's even accessible to the animals that live around here you know definitely so like a creek seems like a good one was it a big creek I think it seemed big to me because I was like five, but (laughs) in retrospect, it was probably just like a little stream. Yeah. So Um, like you just went there and saw the different animals coming around it. mm -hmm. Okay. So you were in Australia at that point. Mm -hmm. How's Australia? Are they, I mean, at that point even, were they putting more of an emphasis on environment? Were you aware of any of that as a kid? Not really. No. I, I remember like at my preschool, we didn't have to wear shoes and like if there was like spiders and things like that, like, um, I think here we're all like terrified of spiders, but they're, they're so used to seeing things like that. Um, they have huge spiders there, don't they? Yeah. Um, just a more, um, involved relationship with nature, at least from where I was living. I can't speak for like all of, um, it's probably different in like Sydney or something, but I lived in like a pretty nature centric area. Um, was your family interested in any of this? No, my family is not very, um, I mean, they're not like anti-environmentalist, but that's good. <laughs> but they're um, sometimes, you know, like I, I've talked to people in my family. They've been like, "Okay, well, why are we protecting the spotted owl when like people are going to lose their jobs and that's just an owl?" Mm-hmm. You know, so they're they kind of like to play devil's advocate. And what's what's your answer to that one? Um, well, <laughs> the balance to ecosystems is just so delicate. You can't. Well, like their suggestion was we should rehome the spotted owl to a different location, but you can't just like uproot a species and give it a new place to live and have the ecosystem stay balanced. Um, Do they like that answer? Does that go over well? Um, yeah, they kind of took my word for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you then you now have a degree in this, right? So, I mean, you, you are someone who can speak with authority on these things. Not that you need even the degree necessarily to say something like that, but... I mean, okay, so as you're growing up then, when did it sort of become something you're like, okay, I'd like to focus on this in a real way, not just as sort of like a hobby or living mindfully about it? I think, um, so I went to Loyola Chicago uh, for a little bit, and that's a super environmentally focused campus. 
And when I was there, I was actually an IT major. And I was kind of had a crisis that I think a lot of like young people do. And I was like, what am I doing? Um, is this what I want to do with my life? You know, I still love technology, which is one of the reasons I was drawn to sustainability because um, there's a lot of interesting techno technology things going on there. But um, I took a year off, came back to Omaha, and I was working at eCreamery actually. <laughs> and oh, okay. yeah, uh, my coworker, um, her name's Liz, she was an environmental science major and she would just, she was so passionate about it. She would just talk to me about it all the time. She'd be like, you'd be perfect for our new sustainability program. And the more I talked to her about it, I was like, and uh, kind of going back to the social justice things um, I mentioned earlier, I was like, oh, this is perfect because I can make a difference and still, you know, work with technology and still work with people. And it just seemed like a combination of a bunch of things I really cared about. And it kind of just all fell into place. And then once I started taking classes in it, I just it's like everything in my brain kind of orbits around it. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like this rabbit hole where once you start to be aware of things, then it's like every choice you make starts to have its own ramifications environmentally. Mm -hmm. And it's hard also because, I mean, it's kind of, I think, what you're saying with the elitist element even too, where it's like it almost you have to have a decent amount of money to be able to be completely eco-friendly in some of the things you do, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Like I'd love to not ever buy plastic ever, yeah. but sometimes it's like I can't necessarily make that work. But then, I mean, do you get any sense of like guilt about certain things where it's like, when it, when you buy something like a water bottle, even for existence or for example, where it's like that's not the best way to I should be drinking water. That's not helpful really to the environment. Is that something you're conscious of just on a day to day basis? Yeah, it's definitely something I still struggle with. Just because when you look at the numbers, I don't I don't remember the exact statistic, but like I think it's a hundred firms, corporate firms are responsible for like seventy something percent of emissions globally. That's such a depressing yeah uh, statistic. So. I, I also don't agree, though, when people are like, well, that's my excuse to check out because my small difference doesn't matter. And like I'm aware when, you know, I'm like lugging around my zero waste stuff and like, you know, trying to do things that make a little difference. I realize that it's kind of like a drop in the ocean, but like it helps me to stay connected to the bigger picture, because when you feel like something's so much bigger than you, you can't really remain hopeful about it. Mm -hmm. And or at least that's my experience. Um, and so I think it's important to find small ways to connect with these bigger issues that we care about. Um, so for me, I guess when I buy a water bottle or something, cause I'm out and I don't have, you know, like my water bottle that I like to bring with me, I, I try not to fall into the comfort of that. Um, or, you know, I'll just wait till I get home. But if I was like in an emergency and I really needed some water, I think, it's important to be gentle with yourself too. Um, and do those small things to stay connected to your personal environmental mission, but also look towards like bigger frameworks, like reaching out to your representatives and mm -hmm. things like that. And so, okay. So reaching out to your representatives might be even more depressing. I feel like from a Nebraska standpoint than even some of the statistics about how many companies are causing most of the emissions, right? Like, yeah, you know, our, <laughs> our representatives are not really a great role models as far as this goes. I, one thing that did make me really happy, um, I live in um, Megan, Senator Megan Hunt's district, mm -hmm. but she just in May passed a bill um, that updated our um, Nebraska's energy codes for um, buildings and uh, things like that. So I think if I remember correctly, we have like the most pro um, progressive energy code in the country right now. Yeah, she, she's definitely the antidote, <laughs> I feel like, to a lot of the depression where you get to like, uh, you know, SAS or any of the people who... The, the people who are in the federal government side of things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I'm in Megan's district as well. And mm -hmm. she's just so cool and everything she does. I mean, I love to see what she's doing, but yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of like a federal level, how much of that weighs on you or weighed on you even when you were, you know, sort of making some of these decisions about what you wanted to study? I think, um, I still, I don't know. I really, I say think like, I do think it's important to reach out to your representatives and keep trying that even when it feels really hopeless, but I think um, my like personal focus is um, working towards community resilience um, and like trying to focus on things on a local level. I think uh, it's hard because it's such a huge problem and as individual people we can only do so much but um, at least on a local level you can work with your community to prepare for you know, what climate change might bring and 
I don't know. Sometimes things just have to start small. I don't, I don't think, at least under the current administration, I don't know how we would ever get something through that was going to make a big difference on our emissions. Um, we've got another election coming up, so you know, my hope is that we really re-gear things. But right. Well, I mean, so I think they call it, is it climate grief is sort of like the thing that they say everyone's, or people who are conscious of this are afflicted by that. That's a super real thing. Yeah. yeah is that, so is that something you have experience with then? Definitely. Okay. I mean, especially when I was going to classes every day, my teachers would like apologize before we left like multiple times a day and be like, uh, you know, I know this is really depressing information. And so I was really lucky to um, study abroad in Sweden and we had uh, for one of our cl- classes we had a climate grief support group um what's, what's that like paint that picture for me so i never got to go because oh, it overlapped okay. with another uh class that i had but really people just get together and talk about how overwhelming um the issue is and how just staying hopeful is so important i am guilty of failing to do that and especially because um this is a topic i'm pretty knowledgeable about a lot of people in my life will reach out to me and be like oh, is this as bad as people are saying it is? And I really have to hold back my personal emotions about it because I know that if, like myself, a person who is lucky to be educated um, about this subject is constantly just like all doom and gloom about it, like everyone is going to be doom and gloom about it. And then that, um, it launches people into like a disengaged state when people feel so hopeless I feel like no one wants to even try to do anything. So staying hopeful is staying engaged in my experience. Um, so is, is that like two separate things though? You, you have to sort of accept the reality, which is not looking good, but then also you choose to be hopeful because what else are you going to do? I guess. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know why I keep citing like these little quotes. No, that no, that's fine. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. But, um, in one of my classes, uh, we talked about the quote like if the world was ending tomorrow would you still plant a tree I think just like it does feel like taking a teacup and trying to like get water out of the Titanic but I can't with good consciousness uh just you know let it happen like I I don't know if we can prevent I think we're locked into is it three to five degrees of warming now I'm not sure it keeps changing but um we can at least put off what is going to happen um, and keep warming down, mm-hmm. at least uh, for the time being. But I don't know. I guess I just can't look at a problem and be like, well, this is already you know, happening, so we shouldn't do anything. I think it's important to keep trying. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, but like people, it's hard to explain to people why, like, I think that, so like when you were in class and they did the tree, and if the world ends tomorrow, would you plant a tree? Mm-hmm. What's sort of the thought process of why you should plant the tree if you're trying to convince somebody that they should? Oh gosh. Um, just to be, just because it's a good thing to do. I mean, you still want to live your life with some principle or is there, is there a specific angle you want to take with it? You know, I didn't really think about, like, why, like, I think, a lot, like, people say yes because it's, like, a thought experiment that kind of, like, suggests a certain answer, um, and so. I don't mean know. to put you on the spot, no, too. No, it's Whatever. okay. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just curious because that's an interesting sort of philosophical question, I feel like, as well. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you can, it's, maybe it's almost, like, not a selfish thing, but it's, like, I want to think that I did everything I could Mm -hmm. um, rather than have the regret that I didn't do everything I could. um, Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. And so let's make, if we bring that to a more literal sense, then do you plant trees? I, okay, I actually, um, I didn't have the opportunity to do it, but uh, the Naturalist School is a really great local group. I just figured out about them. I just saw, I don't know a whole lot about it though. So like what, what's, can you pitch that to me? Yeah. Um, they do a lot of different things. Um, so, uh, Jack Phillips is the, um, person in charge of it, but he just is so knowledgeable on, you know, he, uh, they have like a lot of creative writing events where you'll go, uh, saunter is the word they use. (laughs) Um, and like reflect on, uh, spending time in nature but they also have 
uh, they'll like feature people who are super knowledgeable about different things like fungi and um, other local plant species or things like that. And Mm -hmm. uh, they'll take you on like a guided tour and point out all of the different fungi or, you know, whatever is around. They also um, do some work for um, the state, I think, like, um, why is the word escaping me right now? But they take down information about the different species that are present. Um, okay. And also do things like plant trees downtown. Um, nice. Okay. Yeah. And so is the writing portion, is that supposed to be like a Thoreau sort of idea? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you read Thoreau at some point? Um, I have. It's been since high school. So I'm... Did you read the whole book in high school? No, we just okay. like read excerpts. excerpts. Yeah. yeah. Did it... I find that it's hard for people who are young, I feel like, to really appreciate what Thoreau was going through and experiencing. Did you connect with it when you were younger? I was... Me in high school versus me now, very different. Um, (laughs) I was not the most academically focused person. Right. So I kind of, like... I think I was supposed to read Thoreau. But you like, didn't, yeah. I might have not done it. This is a little I dense. Skimmed. Yeah. yeah. Um, I so. think that's right. Well, it's like you almost have to have <laughs> had a lot of the revelations and to feel that sort of sublime relationship with nature to get what Thoreau's even talking about. And when you're, you know, 15 or whatever, you probably haven't gone through that in the same way that he has. No, I think even now, um, I look back, like, I have been extremely focused on my like academic work throughout college but it took me being mature enough to like realize that like how fortunate I was to have access to that education whereas in high school I was like an angsty teen who was like (laughs) oh yeah like the school system is like I don't know you know like systemic problems with school system yeah yeah okay that's fair though too I mean everybody kind of goes through that (laughs) yeah so, okay, so in your story, so you start, you switched over to a sustainability major? Mm-hmm. Okay, and so where was that? Uh, Creighton. That was at Creighton? Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was a new program? It is, yeah. Okay, um, so like what, what are the sort of aims or careers that that is supposed to set people up for? So it it's kind of hard to say just because I think I was like maybe the third or fourth person to graduate from that program. Wow, so. okay, that's impressive. Okay. Yeah, they uh, they haven't. Like when I joined the program, um, the whole, you, you know, when you sign up for a program, you see all your requirements. Mm-hmm. So some of those were like blank spots and they were like, we're going to fill this out as you go through and develop new classes. So, you know, you're in for, you know, kind of a real interactive choose your own adventure thing here, which was really cool. Honestly, I think I got a lot of leadership opportunities because the program was developing um, and I got to give input on different things. But um I paired that with a social entrepreneurship minor, so um, there was some overlap with, like, environmental business classes. Um, There's an environmental economics class I didn't get to take, actually, but seems really cool. Um, So you you were already sort of thinking, how can I take both of those and merge them so it's like you can put -hmm. sustainability into some kind of business model? Yeah. Okay. um, So you were ambitious then uh, with it. Yeah, I... I've always been kind of into entrepreneurship. Uh, my mom was, um, or she, yeah, she was an entrepreneurship uh, professor at Creighton. She's at a different school now, but okay. um, I got to go, I was like the first high school student to go to Big Omaha because oh, nice. my mom was like, you got to come to this. Um, and so I've always just been really into the energy around startups and things like that. So you said before that you wanted to do IT? Yeah. Okay. So pretty big jump there, right? I yeah. Mean- <laughs> So, I mean, so, okay, so you're thinking you want to figure out how to, you know, do something with it. Would, does Do other people go and sort of like, how can they merge that with business? Or what do other people who get that degree, you know, end up doing? I think sustainability consulting is a pretty um, prominent outcome for people who do sustainability studies programs. But um, like I know, one of my friends paired it with environmental science. And so you can go down um, that route with like a little bit more. My program really focused on social sciences, um, looking at like systemic structures and how they contribute to climate change. Okay. Um, So you, I think, just can bring more perspective to environmental science work. I'm personally looking to bring more of that perspective to like the business or nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so, okay, you did you start the program then, or did you start uh, your company? Was that while you were still in school then you were doing that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I've just always really enjoyed, I was, I got to intern with uh, Carson and Co Global, which is an environmental communications firm in Lincoln. Okay. Um, and so when I was working with them, I did sustainability consulting for Lincoln Calling, um, which is a, a three day multi-venue music f- festival. And then I also did um, sustainability consulting for Farnham Fest. Okay. So what does um, that mean? Like, how do you how do you do sustainability consulting for an event? So it kind of looked different for each um, event, but for Lincoln Calling, since it's a multi-venue uh, festival, we met with um, all of the venue owners, um, and we met with the organizers, uh, the people from I think here in Nebraska no longer runs Lincoln Calling, but uh, we met with the here in Nebraska team. Um, and just everybody that was kind of collaborating with them and worked uh, with them to try to see how sustainability could be incorporated into whatever element they were bringing to the festival. Mm -hmm. So for the bars, it meant um, keeping recycling in all of the venues. Um, Since it's a Lincoln Calling's a nonprofit festival, um, we unfortunately didn't get funding to do everything we wanted to do, but um, we also were hoping to get like solar uh, charging stations for phones, mm-hmm. um, working with all of the food vendors to get composting uh, for the food, things like that. So it really just, at least as far as events go, uh, takes working with like every portion of the event because everything usually can be made more sustainable in some way. Mm-hmm. So did you, so did you just like call them up and pitch that to them or how did you get involved? Well, uh, we were lucky that um, here in Nebraska was super on board because they were kind of in charge of the whole festival and they were like, hey, we want to like bring sustainability in as a main initiative for this festival. So I think that got everybody else involved, excited about it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like, what are they, there's only so much they can do though, like in terms of funding, you said, right? So mm-hmm. like you wanted to have like a solar element or just, you know, to sort of control the way that energy is even being used at it. Was, was it easy to set up recycling and composting? Yeah, that was our main, just like it was the first thing that we wanted to take care of as far as um, the festival went, just because events in general usually have um, a really huge waste output, mm-hmm. um, especially with all the drinking. Um, like that's so many aluminum and glass bottles and cans um, right. and the plastic uh, mixed drink cups, things like that. So I think, I mean, it was challenging. So we had a green team and, um, our volunteers would like stand by the recycling and make sure that people were putting the correct, um, like waste items in the correct bins. Yeah. I, I feel like people are so bad about understanding where to put things and they, it's hard to convince people to sort of educate themselves on what to do with that. Mm-hmm. I've got uh, the friend of mine, Ben Matugwitz, who I do exam creative stuff with. He, He's telling me that he's been at various sports events where like he, he, he will confront people if they put stuff in the wrong. <laughs> like he goes a little more aggressive probably than I would. But it's like, I mean, how, if people just understood how easy it is to sort of reduce the amount of waste that they have, mm-hmm. I like to think that they would. But it's like there's this block between wanting to understand it and then actually educating themselves. Yeah. Why do you think people are averse to changing the way that they deal with their own waste? I think one of the biggest challenges, which I learned actually working in Lincoln, is that every city has different recycling codes. So, um, for example, you can recycle pizza boxes here in Omaha, but a lot of people think you can't because you can't in most places. Okay. Um, like they can't in Lincoln. Um, and I think just the inconsistency of information, it makes sense that it's um, locally geared because every local site is going to have different infrastructure for handling waste. but. It also makes it complicated, I think, just for, you can't Google, like, is this recyclable? Because you might pull up, like, I don't know, Denver's recycling. Right. And then you'll get the wrong information. You have to look up your specific city. Yeah. yeah. Which for us is wasteline.org, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Um, but, but, like, that's not even that hard to do, you know? Like, I get what you're saying. Like, it's, it's inconsistent. But why, do, why are people so reluctant to just figure it out, do you think? I'm not sure. I think we're so overwhelmed. I mean... It's easy for me to be like, hey, everyone, like you should care about this. But I think there's things that people, I mean, I try to care about everything, but you can't educate yourself on like every single topic. Mm -hmm. And there's so much to go in depth about. And, 
you know, even with like plastic straw bands, people will talk to me about it and be like, oh yeah, like, you know, at work we stopped using straws, isn't that cool? And I'm like, yeah, but also from like a disability accommodation standpoint, like plastic straws, I think account for, uh, I don't want to give the wrong number, but it's a very small percentage of plastic waste. Um, so it's like, don't pat yourself on the back too much for that. It's not, you know, it's, well, it's not a bad step necessarily, but it's not. It's yeah. Just, I think the like intersection of looking at how every social justice issue impacts each like other issue is really important because, um, that's how you end up with issues like people feeling guilty that they can't afford a Tesla <laughs> right? and, uh, you know, or people who need a straw can't get one because, you know, we banned them or something. Right. And like, you know, I know it's like, I don't know. I just, it's so complicated to try to do the right thing sometimes. And I think people get overwhelmed by that. Um, yeah. I mean, and I think that applies to even just like a, you know, the way things are manufactured, like usually mm-hmm. the cheaper thing is worse for the environment, but sometimes mm-hmm. you can only afford the cheaper thing. Exactly. And so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, in order to address that, is that something that can the average person do much about that? I think so. Um, just in the sense that I think, I don't want to go totally off the deep end here, um, but like just the the general model of capitalism that like you're always looking to expand your business like we live on an earth with limited resources and endless expansion is just not environmentally feasible and that's why we're facing the issues we are but right. um i don't see the issue being so much i think consuming mindfully i think if you can afford to buy sustainably manufactured products that's great but i mean like reformation is a one of my favorite clothing brands um if you look on their website, you can see like how much water and pollution and things like that you saved buying that garment versus the industry standard. But those dresses are like two, three hundred dollars. Um, and I think if you, the issue with fast fashion is that um, people are buying clothing, wearing it twice, and discarding it, and so it's perpetuating more generation of clothing, and that's got all of the environmental impacts that go with it. Um, but if you are consuming if you choose to consume what or change what you're consuming, but you don't change the way you're consuming, you're just perpetuating this like myth that, you know, we can expand mm-hmm. our, you know, um, <laughs> uh, continuing to expand companies and their income and things like that. Um, we just need to limit our consumption at the end of the day and, I feel like people have America in particular, the whole myth of America is so built on like everything is ours to take over, to consume whatever we want, have Mm -hmm. as much as we want. Do you find that Americans in general are worse about some of this, about sort of changing that mindset? It was interesting. I think, um, so I was too little to really observe, um, all like the culture in Australia around Mm -hmm. this kind of thing. And it probably has changed over like the last 20 years. But um, in Sweden, I noticed people live in much smaller spaces. I would go as far as to say that they're more individualistic than we are. But I think that it's just ingrained at a young age, um, like this mindfulness about the environment. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like people there, I mean, H&M, I think, is a Swedish company if I'm remembering correctly, and H&M is like the big bad guy of fast fashion. Um, And the fashion industry is, I did my final project on fast fashion actually, and there's a myth that it's the second most polluting industry in the world. It's actually not, we like totally don't have the information to quantify that, but um, it is a really huge issue. Um, And I still see, I still saw people consuming in the same ways that I see people consume here, but I noticed they don't have anything like a target over there where you can just go and buy anything. Like you have to go to the camping goods store to get camping goods and you have to go to uh, like Ica or like the grocery store to get groceries. Like you can't, okay. like there's the closest thing I have to target is Klaus Olsen, at least in my, I was living in Uppsala, which um, is like a pretty big city, but it's not like Stockholm. Um, but they just, 
didn't have like this catch-all store where you can go and accidentally you know people joke about how they go to target and are like oh i just walked out and spent two hundred dollars i don't know if that happened like they just don't have anything like that there where you accidentally buy a new rug while you were getting bananas so it's like <laughs> you have to be more mindful of what exactly you're there to buy yeah and so you end up being more conscious of what you have at the end of the day i think so and okay I, I think the smaller living spaces too you just have less space to fill with stuff americans getting convinced to have smaller living spaces though that seems like a hard pitch right yeah probably it seems like everybody wants to upscale have way more space than they need yeah and i don't know why that is exactly i guess it's just well that's how we got into the whole suburban sprawl issue which right. is uh, I mean, it's horrible, but it's one of my favorite things to talk about because I love public transit and I hate, I mean, I don't hate cars, but like, um, I think especially thinking about Omaha and the sprawl in Omaha, um, it would be really difficult for us to have efficient public transit here going all the way out to West Omaha. Mm-hmm. And I, I grew up in West Omaha um, and I didn't have a car until I was like 22 so I that's really late for people in Omaha yeah um so I personally experienced uh I remember when the buses didn't run past 5 p.m like we've really like made some leaps and bounds in recent years with our public transit here um were you a fan of Mello's plan I don't know it intimately um but I was to try something like that do you think it do you think it could work or is Omaha just not I think well, so we've got that, um, the bus rapid transit that's supposed to run up and down Dodge. I think that would be awesome. Um, but I also, I used to, when I didn't have a car, I had to pick my living situation and my jobs and like my gym and like my grocery stores based off of what was accessible by the bus. And so I was living near Dodge, mm-hmm. um, because I had to essentially, but now, um, I live sort of, um, by Benson, but a little, kind of off the like main path so the bus near my house now comes once every 30 minutes and it's it doesn't go a lot of places and you know it's so does that does that limit then what you do yeah so you do you don't have a car right now no I do oh you do okay you yeah. just try not to use it unless you need to or I mean what's the plan there yeah I guess I don't I don't bike um I'm kind do of you do sc- the scooters no I'm not I the scooters scare me a little bit. <laughs> Why? Just, um, I've had too many people like scoot past me and be like, I'm too drunk to be on this thing. And I'm like, that's <laughs> not good. Um, so they kind of scare me as like a safety feature. Like, um, like you're worried you'll crash into a drunk person on a scooter? Or, or like they'll crash into me while I'm walking around Benson. Okay, or yeah. like I, with my, yeah, I mean, I was driving in Benson the other day and someone just, you know, yeah, with no regard to traffic rules, just scooted right yeah, past I, me. <laughs> I feel old talking about the scooters. I haven't gotten on one, but it's like this is this thing that it seems like a lot of yeah, like college age people are doing the scooters thing. And I yeah, I don't know like what to do with them. I don't know if they're a good idea, if they're bad, anything about that. But anyway, I sort of derailed things yeah. for the scooter there. But so okay, so you drive do you I mean, do you drive like do you have to drive to work and stuff, or do you sort of arrange your life where it's like you don't have to necessarily use public or uh, your own transportation? I try to like carpool when I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I live with two other people, so um, we'll like go to the grocery store together or something to mm-hmm. try to cut down like that. I work pretty close to where I live, but still, you know, it's a four minute drive, but like probably a 40 minute walk, it, you know, just with the way I like wouldn't want to walk down Saddle Creek. You yeah, know? I don't blame you. So um, I don't know. Yeah. It's an area of my life that I think could be improved. I I used to be really good about it when I didn't have a car, but then I got a car and I was like, wow, I can go wherever I want, like whenever. This is wild. But I'm also not a huge fan of driving, I think, just because I didn't have a car for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, I still, like when I was in Chicago, I was like such a huge fan of the train. Love the train. (laughs) Um, And just getting to get to know people in your community from sharing a space with them um, is always nice. Do you feel guilt about having a car? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think, I mean, people who have Teslas or some of the more eco-friendly cars, is that a better way to do it or is it still better to just not have a car if you can? 
I mean, I think it's in a city like Omaha when you don't have the infrastructure in place. Um, there's just only so much you can do. I think that there is an issue in Omaha that because the transit here isn't super reliable, um, especially like the Dodge, the number two is pretty good, but like in other areas like where I live, um, it's just not as consistent and there's like less funding to establish those routes in areas like that are essentially not like the I don't know what you want to call them, but like, of course the bus system near Dundee is great, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that when people don't take transit, the city doesn't see incentive to improve it. And because it's not improved, people don't want to take it. And mm-hmm. it just, you know? Yeah. Well, and then, so ways that you try to live your life that, so like if you're trying to replicate that sort of mindfulness and that very deliberate sort of way of living that you saw in Sweden, even mm-hmm. what are ways that people can improve just basic things? Because like you said, I mean, there's only so much you can do about transportation. There's only so much you can do about even like what gets recycled and what goes to the trash here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what are ways that you would advise people try to be more deliberate in the way that they're living in an eco-friendly way? I think, um, trying to cut down on consumption is like the number one thing for me personally. Um, and I, I mean, I love shopping and I love clothes, so it's like really a thing that I have to work on. Um, I try to buy everything secondhand though. Buying secondhand is awesome. Um, just keeping things kind of in that loop for as long as possible Mm -hmm. or like, you know, around Halloween, instead of going to buy something that you're going to use one time and throw away, you can post on Facebook and be like, Hey, does anybody have white go-go boots? (laughs) And then I'll be like, yes, I do, size eight. <laughs> um, but like, I think sharing with your community uh, is really important. Um, kind of going back to the community resilience thing I was talking about, working with people in your community to cut down on waste together. And not even necessarily like with um, the help of local officials. I think that people can do a lot on their own. Um, one of my favorite groups here in Omaha is the Free Farm Syndicate, and they, uh, somebody donated some land to them and they work together to um, grow produce and then they give it away for free um, in areas where people are have less access to grocery stores and things like that. Um, and so I think contributing to efforts like that um, is really important. Um, I think just talking to people about your own personal concerns is important because it gets everybody's mind kind of geared towards that. Um, Yeah. I mean, do you find that if you talk about your, whether it's climate grief specifically or just general concerns about the way that people are consuming things, if it's in an unhealthy way, are they receptive to that generally? um, It really depends. I think it has to do with the way it's framed, um, which is a thing you have to be super self-aware about, I guess. Because you don't want to talk about things in a way that makes people feel guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, like another thing, my friends will be like, I'll be like, that's cute. Where'd you get it? And they're like, I don't want to tell you because it's from H&M. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not mad at you. Right. Like, you know, we're college students. You know, we're just trying to, you know, do our best and also be people. But it's hard if even like you feel guilty about some of the things you do. I mean, yeah. surely that, that comes in some way. It doesn't necessarily need to make someone feel bad about it, but like we all do share some degree of guilt for what it is that we're not, you know, that we're consuming in a bad way or that's producing unnecessary waste. Right. Yeah. I mean, we are guilty as a society. I think being aware of guilt, um, and doing something productive with it is a possibility versus just like sitting with that guilt and kind of being like, Oh, I'm so terrible. Cause you do have to recognize larger like class structures and things like that, or mm-hmm. infrastructure, things that make it difficult to, um, you know, just participate in the lifestyle that you ideally would like to. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, there are things happening all the time. Exist Green in Dundee accepts compost now. Um, we didn't really used to have a public compost option in Omaha, but now we do. Yeah, and there's uh, Hillside Solutions as well. Hillside, yeah, they're doing really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I know, they do, like, larger event um composting i believe and a bunch of other stuff too have you ever had a compost bin me yeah yeah 
I had that. Did you build your own or did you buy something? Oh, I guess I should say I had like a compost bin in my little one bedroom apartment and oh, I would okay. like take it to another compost site. Oh, okay. I've never like managed compost myself. I built this huge one and I didn't put the divider line in it. And so it's just been like years of mm-hmm. compost that I'm terrible about just like digging and kind of like putting <laughs> it anywhere. But it's just, yeah, this huge box that I made. And so I've always been like going around trying to, you know, pitch to people that they should compost. And mm-hmm. I've run into similar issues where they're like, I don't want to like tell you, you know, I, I don't want you to judge the way I'm throwing away my trash or something like that. Yeah. Like if I'm at somebody's house, you know, they're conscious sometimes of the way they're even getting rid of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I don't mean to do that necessarily. It's just, you know, like my own ways. like I, I can compost. I have a backyard, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like I'm so I'm going to build some way to do that. Um, and I found that for the most part, in my experience, anyway, people are pretty open to pitches of how you might, how they might be able to be a little bit more eco-conscious, eco-friendly. They don't always put that much effort into it, but it seems like in general, they're not opposed to the idea of being friendlier to the environment. Like they all can kind of get around that concept. It's just like when it comes down to, you know, like voting for people who will enact something for that, Mm -hmm. then for some reason they're reluctant or it's like, it's never enough of a priority. It seems like to get sort of mass uh, movement on any of the issues. I think Part of it, um, going back to that number earlier, that it's like 100 firms doing 70% of the um, emissions contributions. I think that there's a lot to be said for like this middle ground where companies want us to think it's our fault, (laughs) Um, which I don't want to sound like it's like a big conspiracy or something, but like pushing things like the straw issue or like, you know, advertising and being like, this is made of recycled plastic and it makes people feel complacent and like, Oh, I'm eco-friendly. I bought a recycled plastic dish brush, mm-hmm. you know, and it causes us to not think about like this bigger picture, um, which is that it's a corporate structure that's enabling the amount of pollution that we see and that is going to cause climate change in a more severe way than we're currently experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I think it's, I have really mixed feelings about like these easy solutions because I think it's great to get people on board and have them feel like they can connect with it and like it's accessible, but it's also, I mean, we're never going to be doing enough and I think it's important to recognize that as well. Do you think the federal government could regulate those corporations though and make some change theoretically if there was enough movement for it or enough uh, support for it? I mean, yeah, if they put a cap on our carbon is we'd, that okay? We'd yeah. be forced to. Do you think that would be one of the best methods to change things? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely in favor of stricter government regulation um, okay. on pollution. I think it's difficult though, going back to just like people with money have privilege. I mean, what happens when you exceed your um, limit for like a toxic substance or pollution or things like that? Though you just get a fine, and if you're really a super rich company you just pay the fine right and keep polluting because it's making you profit so in that way it's like not a perfect solution um it's really difficult i don't know i just think corporations are so powerful um i don't think the government on its own can i mean i think we just need more like personal engagement than that do you, I mean, do you think, though, if there was enough movement and like people making, you know, demands of their own representatives to try to make something like that happen, do you think it could happen? Or is the system so corrupt, basically, that the corporations will always pay out, you know, to make sure that the politicians don't actually legislate them in an effective way? You know, I mean, like, I'm inclined to say it's the latter, but I also, you know, things happen that you don't expect to happen politically all the time. I mean, not all the time, but throughout history, like we've seen these like huge switches. Um, I mean, the reason that because Earth Day was established in the 70s, but um, if you look around the social science around it, it's really interesting. Um, Essentially, the idea was that there were so many counter um, cultural movements going on. The government was like, we need to break up like how strong this just overall like countercultural energy is so we need to pick one of these movements and run with it so that we at least kind of break up so they ran with earth day and so that would be like early epa sort of movement that that would establish that's i mean so that's not like it was a specific study i read just looking at um it was looking at comparing germany 
Norway, um, the United States, and I forget one other country, but it was looking at like who's um, most geared to take on more progressive environmental policy. So the United States was not in a good position. Um, Norway also actually wasn't because kind of what I was talking about earlier, but when you're like doing a little bit, you don't feel like you need to make this radical change. Okay. Um, it's like almost like a co-option of, I don't know, not that that's what Norway is doing. I mean, they're doing a lot of really great things environmentally, but um, Germany was actually in the best position um, just the way their government is set up and the um, social situation going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly to, or it's not similar to what our situation was in the 70s, but for them currently, uh, they're just most set up to make big changes. So what they chose to focus on, so like you're talking about anti-war or civil rights sort of movements, mm-hmm. and then instead yeah. let's funnel that energy into the environment yeah. as a way to sort of push back other political yeah. movements? Yeah. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a super popular uh, thing, but it's just a social scientist who uh, looked at this and was like, why did we have so much success in the 70s? And just looking through like government statements and things like that, they kind of figured that that was... That was like the least offensive way to be somewhat progressive yeah. for people? Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's depressing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because then you think now, like, I mean, we have social movements still going on. um, But I think like in the late 60s, the energy just pushing back against the government was so strong. And, you know, it's horrible to think that the government will only like progress in a radical way if like they need a way out to like kind of break up that energy. But um, I don't know, just according to the article, I think it was about 10 years old, though. Um, It wasn't saying that we had enough energy going on in the U.S. to push back. Well, but so like I I would guess most people in the country, whether they're, you know, right wing or left wing, would agree that it's probably not a good thing that the amount of emissions is so limited to such a small portion of corporations. Right. Like those corporations Mm -hmm. are primarily like they can pretty much agree that that's probably not the best way to just let things happen. Yeah. So you'd think that that could be channeled into the kind of political energy you need to actually get some sort of movement, right? I I feel like, like I want to say yes. I just think there's so much money in fossil fuel, mm-hmm. and that money is paid out to people who have a lot of political power. Right. Um, and that's why we don't see change, essentially, is like the money and the way that equates to power and but that, I mean, that's essentially the central, uh, you know, environmental problem we have, isn't it? That fossil fuels control our politics in terms of just money and corruption. Yeah. So like that, if anything, if we're going to change things, like that's got to be probably the most important thing if it's possible to change, right? Yeah. That that should be the one. Do you, do, you, do you have any optimism that it would change or get any better with time? Um, I think... One thing that's really interesting I've seen, um, actually during my last semester on campus, uh, there was a lot of pressure on the administration at Creighton to divest um, because we've got fossil fuel donors Mm. um, who I think mostly support the business school, if I'm correct, Uh, which, you know, when people are donating money to schools, then they have kind of some say over what's being taught, Mm -hmm. uh, which is like why the students were like, you need to stop taking this money because we know that there are other impacts going on besides the school just getting money. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've seen Creighton make a lot of changes while I was there. Um, We got like a sustainability coordinator and things like that. But I think um, quite a few schools have pushed their administrations to divest from fossil fuels. So I think uh, universities are a great example of a place where uh, that power can be um, kind of pushed back because, I mean, if people were more educated about uh, the climate crisis, I think people would be behaving differently, especially, like, there's no climate or environmental science class required for anyone in the business school at Creighton. I don't know about other um, colleges around here, but uh, of course, like, because I was in business classes too, and so I would bring my perspectives to those classes, but you know, it'd be like, come up with a company idea and people would say things. And I would be like, that is so environmentally horrifying, but it's like not even on their radar, you know? Right. Um, and so I think 
if we didn't have fossil fuel money um, dictating what people were being taught, I think that's an opportunity to um, develop just different types of leaders for mm-hmm. the business community. Um, because, I mean, like solar and wind energy and things like that have the potential to be really profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it doesn't even... One of the things that's so cool about sustainability when you're trying to pitch it to people is like you're going to save money in the long run by cutting down on like your energy usage or cutting down on like the amount of product you need to produce. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that seems like a really logical way to look at it, but mm-hmm. you don't see that. That doesn't seem to be as apparent to everybody or people just don't want to accept that the way that you'd think that they would. Yeah. I think also just because environmental stuff is so politicized, people don't. It's like such a polarizing issue that a lot of conservatives, I feel like, don't want to be like, yeah, I believe in climate change because then it's like, I don't know, you're committing to something that's uh, like claimed by the your opposing party, essentially. I think that's the stupidest thing that we've, I guess we, like, we didn't allow that to happen, but the fact that the environment is a political issue is just so absurd to me. Yeah. Like, it's so unnecessary to become a partisan issue. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, like... The thing that I, don't, I never understood, which is like, you know, I know there's some debate basically because Al Gore made a movie about global warming. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, we can't go along with that. But it's like, but you still aren't pro-pollution or like, how can you possibly be pro, you know, yeah, you know, making uh, water, air, land dirty? You know, it just doesn't like it doesn't make any sense just on a basic level. No, like, I mean, it blows my mind constantly. Um, I do follow. Um, I'm trying to remember what the name of the newsletter is, but I, I follow a conservative environmental newsletter um i don't always open it but when i do it's always just really interesting to see the uh angles that they take a lot of it's more like business geared like i was saying earlier about how you can save money um by being sustainable mm-hmm. um but i don't know i i watched like documentaries in class about conservative candidates who have come forward and been like i support climate change and they don't get reelected. and another thing i learned um in my environmental politics class is that one of the issues with climate change is that we have to make sacrifices now to like never even really see benefits to just not see a downfall Mm -hmm. and our election cycles are so short people are wanting to address issues that are going to make a difference in their election results immediately and so it's just an easy issue to put off because I mean you make people reduce their pollution or something like that or you decide to preserve an area where people have logging jobs um that's immediately going to impact people's lives Mm -hmm. and you're not going to see an immediate benefit you're just not going to see you know the harm that comes with continuing that practice but it's i mean politically speaking considering short election cycles it's a really like long-term issue and we're set up to only deal with short-term issues that makes sense so well, and I did a Senate internship when I was in grad school, and I feel like my biggest takeaway was a lot of elected people don't really have that much of a cohesive ideology. It's just sort of like who's giving them money will dictate what they'll vote for. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I remember I went in there and I was trying to think, you know, like, how do I understand, like, which ideologies are even at play? And it's like so much of it's not even – I don't even know that that many of these people voting on these things actually have a strong opinion so much as just sort of like they're told or influenced to vote one way or another. Yeah, I mean... And that was really depressing as well. Well, it's... I mean, because it's like I was saying earlier, I guess, but you just can't be super educated about every single issue. And I remember I uh, I went to, like, the Youth Climate Summit two years ago, I think, and one of the things we got to do was go meet with a senator and talk to them about an issue. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking... I forget who the senator was, but we were trying to talk to them about food deserts. And... They, were, they didn't know what a food desert was. They were like, I don't get why you wouldn't just get in your car and drive to the nearest grocery store. And we we're like, well, people can't afford cars and there's not public transit in these areas. And we were like advocating to increase public transit. Mm-hmm. And the senator was just like, I don't know what a food desert is. I just don't get it. It seems like you should just save up money, buy a car and get in your car and then you drive. Like, And it's just like there's so many things at play when it comes to food deserts. Mm-hmm. And I don't expect, you know, you can't be educated about every single thing, but... I think that, again, going back to the way things are politicized, 
he was just like, that sounds like a liberal idea. So I just don't like it. Well, it's not that, <laughs> like it's not that he needs to be an expert, but it's like you you should be open to understanding things or seeing nuance and things that maybe you didn't see when you first looked at it. You know, yeah. I mean, you would hope that your representatives have that quality. Yeah, I mean, because you are representing everybody, or you're supposed to be. Right. And it's frustrating, you know. I've written letters to Gene Stothert or you know Ben Sass, whoever. Um, and you get these responses that are just like, don't even address what you said in your letter. Mm-hmm. And it's so frustrating because I, I get that they aren't going to sit and handwrite a letter to everybody who writes them. But also it's like, it's your job to represent right. us. So I know you didn't even read my concerns or my points about, you know, because I try to argue from the like business standpoint right. a lot when um, addressing things, but not like all the time, but when talking to conservative people. My family's super conservative, so I'm used to... That's why you're arguing with them about owls and things. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, okay, so, I mean, yeah, we've got obviously big systemic problems, but, I mean, there are a lot of little things people can do to live in a a way that is more sustainable. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you've talked about some of the basic ways, and it comes down to, like, basically how much you consume or how you consume, right? You'd say that's sort of, like, mainly what it comes down to? I think how much you consume is a lot more important than the way you consume just because of accessibility. Like fast fashion, I mean, it's hard because those things aren't built to last, but if all you can afford is like a dress from H&M and you can't get one from, I mean, that's why I advocate for thrifting so much though. And I'm super into fashion, so I'm lucky to like be able to go to the thrift store and know when something is like, I'm like, this is a Pendleton jacket. This is going to last me and it's $5, you know, but, um, Getting familiar with what quality looks like and the way, especially I feel like things just used to be made better. Secondhand stuff is really a great option. Um, I don't think I distressed that enough, but the buying less, buying secondhand, I think is more important than like buying a sustainably sourced cotton t-shirt that costs $80. Okay. Uh, What about with food? Do you have a philosophy on sort of like, should people not buy certain sort of types of food? Like, you know, should people avoid beef or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, so I, it's an interesting situation for me because I'm allergic to soy, I'm allergic to peanuts, almonds, um, so a like lot all of the, stuff. All the non-meat proteins? Yeah, okay. so I'm, I try to just stick to like chicken and fish um, just because environmentally those have lower um, impacts, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it kind of going back to like the disability, not that it's the same thing, but some people have health problems that make it they can't follow a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet. And so I don't want to make like a hard statement about that. Um, Just try to be mindful would be kind of the idea. Yeah, I think local like eating local is super important. Um, Avoiding beef is pretty important. Um, I don't know. People have really different opinions on it, like. I mean, if everybody stopped eating meat, it would make a huge impact, and I can't deny that. I just feel almost hypocritical saying that because it's not an option for me. Like, sure. I've met with a dietitian, and she's been like, you can't do this. And I'm like, no, I have to. And she's like, you can't. And I'm like, okay. Um, well, but then you even get into problems of, like, farming has its own environmental devastation yeah. too, right? So it's like you can find good things and bad things about pretty much every choice you make. I think I think going back to the local thing is super important. Um I volunteered with the Free Farm Syndicate and I was talking to one of the more regular volunteers and she works at Natural Grocers and she was talking to me um, just about how important learning how to grow food and like knowing where to find it in your local environment or local community is because um, when all the flooding happened, they didn't get their produce shipments for like three days and everybody was coming into the store and they were like, what are we going to do? And, um, you know, she's like, well, you know, hopefully, you know, a local place to like a local farmer or something like that. And I don't think she said that to the customers, but she was saying it to me, like, so scary that people don't have these relationships developed because Mm. as you know, climate change gets worse, we're going to see more and more of these like huge natural disasters that, or I mean, I guess, I mean, flooding is a natural. Yeah. I think that that counts. Yeah. Um, issue that's going to make it difficult for us to continue our agriculture system the way we do it now. Um, I think it's super important to know how to get food locally, know how to prepare it. Um, 
store it, things like that. And the people, like, if they have the means to, should try to grow it themselves even? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. So, okay. So, your company, Dryad, is how you say it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Where, what's the name? Where's the name come from? Um, so, it's just, a like, a spirit that's connected to a tree and takes care of the tree. What's and that like, come from? You know, I think it's kind of goes across a, a lot of things because my boyfriend's super into like a lot of like gaming like D D, okay um magic things like that and i know that when i like when he saw it he was like oh my god cool like this is like i'm familiar with this i more knew it just from like fairy story uh like i like not like mystical things i like mm-hmm. mystical things so yeah. um that's kind of where i got it from but i know that it's present in like a lot of um like gaming Okay. Yeah. Situations. And so Dryad Sustainability Consulting, is that what, is that the full name of the company? Did mm-hmm. I get that right? Okay. Where can people go to find that or anything else you're working on? So currently I've got, um, a Facebook page and an Instagram. Um, the Instagram is Dryad, D-R-Y-A-D, um, dot S-C. And then, um, if you just Google it, uh, the full name, the Facebook page should come up. Um, so um, yeah, if someone is interested in uh, one thing I haven't done yet that I'm really interested in is working with people on like a one-on-one level, just about like lifestyle changes and things like that. Um, so if anyone's interested in that, you can contact me. It's kind of a thing that I would be learning about too. So, you know, I guess I would say go into it with that in mind, but, um, I, uh, was super lucky to work with Omaha Zine Fest back in March and that was a really fun event. So I posted some things about that and about the results um, from the waste management from that event. Um, do you do a blog or anything? I don't currently have a blog. I'm actually working on a, a not a website for um, the company, which is another thing I need to take care of. I kind of, after school got done in May, was like, I'm going to give myself a little break. <laughs> yeah. And then in the fall, I'm going to like really um, try to deep dive into all of this. Um, but... Um, I am working on like a personal website, which I'll have a blog on, which is just my name, jessicamazari.com. Nice. Okay. Yeah. You got to write your Walden. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to me today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Riverside Chats is hosted by me, Tom Noblock. I produce the show along with Ben Matukowicz through our company, Exarbin Creative. We're housed in Studio 62, right in BFF's headquarters in Pet Shop, Benson, Nebraska. To support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash Creative. It helps us keep this show going. Also, we absolutely appreciate it if you leave us a review and subscribe on whatever your favorite podcast app is. Our dedication to finding the fascinating people here in Omaha and showing that they don't all leave and go to the coast is dependent on you listening, appreciating, and sometimes supporting us. As always, the most important thing, though, is that you listened at all. So thank you for doing that, and have a great week. <laughs>